Give an extra hug to somebody, shake their hand, and let's get on to our message this morning. It really is good uh, to be together with God's people, and that's something that we should never really take for granted, that we should always just be so appreciative of the believers that God brings into our lives for whatever season that may be, so that we can fellowship together and just enjoy one another's, you know, company. It is something to be simply thankful for. And in this sermon series, Simply Thankful, we are looking at the life of Jesus and just a few of the things that we should be simply thankful for. Last week, we looked at being simply thankful for Jesus' life as we looked at John chapter 1. Sitting here this morning during worship, seeing people's arms raised as they would reach out to God in praise, I'm simply thankful for that. Or to see a husband and wife holding hands during singing, simply thankful for. Or even a kiss on the head from a husband to his wife, simply thankful for those things. And just each and every unique relationship that is in this church. I'm simply thankful for my good friend Matt Corgan here. As we were worshiping the Lord, I said, Matt, I can still see you walking up, going up these steps, pulling off your shirt, kicking off your shoes and socks, and getting in the baptistry to be baptized into Christ. So moved. And what a powerful moment that was for you, for me, for this church family, uh, Matt did say, you know, the only regret I had was driving home in wet jeans and undergarments. He said, that was a tough situation. But, hey, we sacrifice for the Lord, okay? Quit whining, you're Marine. Oh, okay. Got to share it with the world. So today... We are simply thankful for Jesus' teachings, which there are many. And as John would write in regards to Jesus' teachings, as we discussed last week, he says, there are so many. I suppose that if someone tried to write them down, the whole world would not contain them. I'm thankful for Jesus' life. But I am really thankful as well for his teachings because it is his teachings as he receives them from the Father that he shares with us so that there are things we can know. Things that we can know. What pleases him. What he desires of us. Things that we can know. We don't go around like in the dark. We're not blind. We know what he wants from us and desires from us because of his teachings. And we can be simply thankful for that. His powerful teachings that many would say there is never been anyone that speaks with the authority in which he speaks. You know it as well 
you would say it maybe a little differently, but you've experienced it. When you read the Word of God, especially those red letters, they speak to your heart like no other book, no other letter they speak to you. End John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, no one comes to my Father except through me. Jesus makes it clear that the only way that we have contact, relationship, presence with the Father is through Him. If you don't have Jesus, you do not have Father. If you do not have the Father, you are separated from the Father and are lost. No one comes to the Father except through the person of Jesus Christ. But then we find another teaching of Jesus in John 6:44 where it says that no one comes to Jesus unless the father draws him or her same idea but a little bit different emphasis no one comes to God except through Jesus John 6:44 No one comes to Jesus unless God the Father is drawing them. Well, how does that work? Jesus says in John 12, 32, When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, not each and every individual that would ever live, But as we said last week from John 1.12, those who would receive and believe, those who would see the act of love and sacrifice, the death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus says that will be a drawing force by my Father. This is how God will use me to draw you to receive and to believe, to be convicted in heart. And so you see these three passages, very similar but different, all shaded with how God is working in the world to have relationship of salvation for His people. Now, to be absolutely brutally honest, and maybe some of us never really think maybe this deeply, but when you think of how God is working in the plan of salvation, it becomes very clear that in some ways there are some things that are just 
absolutely a little, should I use the word, mysterious. And I use this word mysterious to say there's some things that we we just can't figure out. It's sort of like Deuteronomy 29, 29, 29. There are the secret things of God. There, There are some things that He gives us. There are some things that He doesn't give us. And there are some things that we wrestle with. And so why last week I can say to you that that God has worked through Jesus Christ so that you would look to the cross in your life and that God would freely give you the choice, the power, the liberty to choose Him or not. is a reality. But at the same time, the reality why God has given us this free will to choose what He's done through the person of Christ, we also see, on the other hand, that we would not receive or believe unless He had given Himself in the act of the cross. And we have this beautiful, beautiful teaching of God's grace And man's responsibility. Whenever you hear Peter preach for the first time on the day of Pentecost. And after Peter preaches that you Jewish people, that was the audience, have killed the Messiah that God sent into the world. The Christ, Jesus, you were the ones guilty of his death. The text says that they were convicted in their hearts. Like, oh no. And what do they say to Peter? What shall we do? And Peter responds, repent. Change your ways. Be baptized. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you'll receive the forgiveness of sin. And this is a promise, not only to you, but to all who are far off. So you and I, the people of this world, are to be touched in a powerful way, a drawing way, By what God did through Jesus Christ on the cross. And we have a part. We have a responsibility. And it may be, and this is probably a bad word. It may be a small part. But it's a significant part. And that part in the grand scheme of what God is doing through Jesus Christ is... To receive and believe. Do you know the word receive is to take. To reach out and to take. Now it's not to be seen in the sense that we're going to reach out and we're going to demand and take salvation. 
It's not that kind of take. But it is a it is offered. It is yours. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's a gift and it's from God. And you see it in the cross of Christ and that drawing power of His out, outstretched arms. You, you, you take it. And to double down on taking it, you receive it freely. That's your part. That's my part. That's the world's part. And it really is against the idea of this teaching that God chooses you independent of anything you might do. Because irresistible grace, if you break it down to its fundamental teaching, is... And it's written and it's stated. You can Google it all day long. Irresistible grace is that God picks you. But no matter how much you might want to be picked, He didn't pick you. And we get this translation and this belief by, I think, brutalizing the text. Or texts. All I know is that we must all, in the difficult things, the mysterious things, reason from what is easiest to what is most difficult. If God, in fact, picks people and doesn't pick others, if that's the way it is, then what Peter tells us in the inspired verse of 2 Peter 2.20, that God doesn't show favoritism, and it is God's will in His patience that all men would repent and be saved. If God wants it, it must be a possibility at least, right? If God wants it. Now, all this boils down to How can you know? I mean, really know that you're saved. You may say, well, I had this experience or I had that experience. But, you know, we have all kinds of experiences and deceive ourselves. How can you know that you're saved? Because John says you can know. And I think it's important... But while we'll see this idea of irresistible grace, the fact that God does not choose some and leave out others, it's likewise just as important for us to realize that our receiving and believing while a small part in the grand scheme of it all is a significant part. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have because you said you want to know how you get into the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, go sell everything you have and come follow me. 
And the rich young ruler walks away sad. If being chosen is a calling, Jesus called the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler walked away, which would be an impossibility if irresistible grace was an absolute truth. And this text that we look at today, in John chapter 3, is a text that highlights what God is doing for us in the process of salvation. And I think it becomes even more appealing when I find myself going, as I share the good news, John 16 really does come to life. It does have meaning. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever, that whosoever, who, whosoever might be your name, my name, whoever's name. But it is the preaching of what God did in Christ, the same preaching, a little bit different words, as the first sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost. We have a part, however small it may be, but a significant part to receive and believe. And I stress that part on the opposite end because there may be people here today that just, I'm just going to wing it. Hey, I'm sitting in church. Grandma, she loved the Lord. Dad was faithful. I grew up in Sunday school classes. I put the gold star on the cardboard. I was there a lot that we think that's what saves us. It doesn't save you. Religion doesn't save you. A new religion doesn't save you. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Here is a man that has religion. Here is a respected religious man. He knows the law. He's a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that makes the decision for all the people of Israel. Jesus didn't have to tell us that. He could have just said there was this man. But he seems to highlight that this man had a name, Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee of that sect, not a Sadducee or an Essene. And he was a part of the Grand Council of the Seventy. He was a religious man. And this religious man comes to Jesus with flattering words. He came to Jesus at night. And most scholars think really the reason he came at night was... You know, they didn't want to to be seen by the people as giving any kind of authority or credential to the person of Jesus. So we'll go at night, and it's clear in the text that there's some within the Sanhedrin, we, we, that are of this mindset that Rabbi, honoring him, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So 
a religious man in a very prominent position in the hierarchy of religion. And he comes to Jesus and really uses some flattering, kind talk. But he acknowledges that those things that Jesus has been doing has caught their attention as well as everyone else's attention. And we know that God has to be with you. Because otherwise these things couldn't be happening. But we still come into you at night to talk to you about it. And you think, if it was a natural flow in conversation, Jesus would respond to this. Yes, I've come from God. But he doesn't do that. And so for me, it's pretty clear that a message that's there underlying is religion because of what he says next, is not going to save anybody. A new religion will not save anybody. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one, absolutely no one, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And here's the teaching as it develops that we start to find ourselves being thankful for. Because he's going to go on to describe this born-again experience. But I simply would stop and pause and say the teaching of Jesus that we're simply thankful for is this teaching of knowing how to be saved. Knowing how it works, how it happens. You come to Jesus because God is drawing. But you've got to go through Jesus or you don't have the Father. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Later on, Jesus will say to Nicodemus, You know, you don't understand this. And you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand this. I'm talking to you about earthly things, too, and you don't get it. How will you ever understand spiritual things? And that's what I'm saying. Here Nicodemus is, like many people in the world, and there's some difficulty in understanding. There's some mystery as we look at this born again. Are you born again? Can you know that you are born again? Or do you just say, I did certain things, so I must be born again? It doesn't work that way either. You ever been out on a limb, or metaphorically speaking, to be way out on a limb and you sort of feel like you're out there all by yourself? That's sort of what teaching something like this text is like. I hope you are hearing clearly what I'm saying. You must be born again got nothing to do with the fleshly birth. Nicodemus, your mind is off in the wrong area. I'm talking about something spiritual and you're thinking, well, is there some kind of miraculous rebirth that can take place of the flesh? Jesus answered very truly or 
Amen, amen, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the Spirit. Now he starts to really focus a little bit more. You have to be born of the water and the Spirit if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to be saved. That's uh, what it means to be born again. But here's the problem, I believe, in like church institutions. Because of our denominationalism, we twist, I think, Scripture to support a view that we have. And we cannot twist Scripture to support our own view. So in context, to the born-again experience, what in the world does it mean to be born of the water and the Spirit? Because there's two predominant views within the church. The first one we can see is Nicodemus talks about, well, does it have something to do with the fleshly birth, this, this water birth? This, the water breaks and the child is born and Jesus says it's got nothing to do with that birth. That's not it. You couldn't do it again anyway. God didn't design it that way. So that one is off the table. And then the other one is baptism. People say it's, it's your baptism. Now listen. Listen to me very closely. Baptism is critical. Your baptism is critical. It's of high importance. It is absolutely necessary. That's what Peter said. What do you need to do? I'm telling you, repent and be baptized to receive the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is critical. Baptism is more than an outward sign of an inward change that we so often hear people say of baptism. Peter talks about baptism. He says, when you were baptized, Christ Jesus circumcised your heart. So when you went into the baptistry, your heart was touched. You come out happy, but you don't, didn't feel like an actual circumcision of the heart. It's a spiritual thing, too. So it's absolutely an outward sign of an inward change, but it's also a spiritual dynamic that Christ is performing on the believer in obedience. But I say that to say this, having the highest view of baptism by immersion, and that's the view I hold, because that's what I believe Scripture teaches. I don't believe this text here The water is talking about baptism. So what is it talking about? If it's not talking about water baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which is sort of lines up, and I can see why so many have this view that that's baptism, but here's why I don't have it. It's because of what Jesus says several places, but especially right here in John chapter 4. 
as he talks to the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, the water at the well, the physical earthly water, whoever drinks this water, what's it say, will be thirsty again. We know that's true. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. It is absolutely clear that this passage and the water metaphor that Jesus is using that comes bubbling up like a brook inside of us is this living water which is the Holy Spirit. So... You go back and you look at John 3, 5. You must be born of the water. And the Spirit is to say you have to be born from above by God, by the spiritual process of what He has done in Christ as He draws you through the cross to your part, receive and believe. You and I can never take credit for anything. He's provided the act that's moved us to have faith. But he has supplied us in his grand scheme of being able to say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I believe in you. As I thought about this, I thought about my own life. When was it that I was convicted in the Spirit? And the truth is, and I know it's different for all people. Different settings. I was in Kansas City, Missouri, working for AT&T in a clean room where we built chips. And I was on a break. And yes, I had been reading the Word. Just sort of gotten back and reading the Word. walking down that hallway for me. And I'm telling you, it's just as clear now as it was then. I stopped and a strong sensation came over me. You are lost. You are lost. You've grown up in the church. You were baptized in the city park. But you don't know me. You are not living for me. And you are not walking in my light. I was a bad person. You're lost. We just had, you know, our first child. So it was probably extra sensitive. But that's the way God worked in my life. You're lost. When you look at the thief on the cross who was dying, different situation, but really the same outcome, I'm lost. What must I do? Can you remember me when you come into your kingdom, right? I don't know where it was when God 
really spoke to you in a way that you like, Lord, I'm unworthy. But here I am. I want you. I want salvation. I want to receive you, and I believe in you. I worry that we get into sort of the humdrum, go to church, the preacher preaches, we take communion, have an offering meditation, we greet each other, we sing a few songs, but we never are convicted with the thought and confirmation in our lives, I am the Lord's because His Spirit from above has convicted me that I'm a sinner and that I'm lost. And He pointed that out to prepare Jesus' way through John the Baptist. And it cost John his life because people did not like hearing it. But it was the truth, and it was the truth from God. And so he says in verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Spirit that God gave you when He knit you together in your mother's womb in the secret place... He gave you your soul, your spirit. And it is His Spirit from above that is convicting, that is drawing, that is calling, that is knocking and saying, what is it going to take to make you stand up and receive the Lord? He is there. Why are you waiting? Why don't you act? Because you've not been convicted. But the Spirit is convicting. And the Lord is drawing. Someone says, why don't the Lord draw me? He is drawing you all the time through the cross. And it is through the cross that He draws each and every one of us And without the cross, he draws no one. How horrible will it be when all the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin find out that their religion didn't save them. How horrible will it be for any of us or our loved ones or our children or our spouses to find out after it's too late that God's grace doesn't cover the one who does come to Jesus. How horrible. Hebrews 9.27 says a man is destined to die once. And then he faces God or judgment. Verse 6 makes it clear that the 
born-again experience is all about what God is doing. And Jesus says, our part is to receive and believe. Belief isn't, oh, merit. It's not something we deserve, we work for. It's a gift. And that's why Jesus says to the Pharisees, who they're always looking, give me something to do. Jesus says, this is the work that God requires of any of us, to believe in the one that he sent. So I ask you today, is God speaking to your heart? Is he drawing you to Jesus through the cross? Have you experienced that? Are you experiencing it? I pray so. Because that's how you know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are saved. Paul said, I am the worst of sinners. I'm not saved because of any goodness in me. I was following the path of the Pharisees. God broke in, struck me down. And I said, Lord. And Jesus said, I'll show you what you must do. God always is one going ahead. God is always initiating, as I've said in past messages, but I want us to get the goodness of God and be simply thankful for the teaching that God wants salvation to come to His creation, His children. Because He doesn't want any of His children to be separated from Him for eternity. But there will be. Because many will walk down the narrow road and enter through the small gate. Which is also a metaphor for saying they will not come to Jesus. They go down that broad path and broad road and through the small gate. And that is Jesus Christ's extended arms. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again, Nicodemus. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, this passage of Scripture seems to be saying quite strongly, you don't control the Spirit. The Spirit is a free agent. God is working in ways that we don't understand. But when the Spirit moves in a person's life from above, you see the results of that Spirit in a person. Now, there may be times in our lives that we are grieving the Holy Spirit and someone could look at our lives and go, that doesn't look like a 
a life that's been born again. In fact, you know, I'm glad that God's the one that does the judging, right? And God knows, because we don't need that from each other, because we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. But the Spirit is independent. Just as the Spirit gives gifts, as the Spirit decides, the Spirit moves in unique ways. But when you're born again, there's a change in your life. Just give me a couple more minutes on this. How can you know that you are saved? In 1 John, John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born again. Textually at least, grammatically always, faith in God comes before regeneration. Everyone who believes that Jesus is who he says he is, that person is born of God. John 12, yet to all who did receive, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the exousia, the right to become children of God. So if you're born of God, that is because you believe in Jesus. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in the Son. So if you have the Son, you have eternal life because that is the process by which God gives us the born-again experience. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Look, we do live in an ever-growing society, especially American society, where we do believe that just because you're a good person, that you have life, that you've been born again, that you'll be saved, like... That's not the way it works. You have to be born from above by the Spirit, which takes place because you receive and believe Jesus. And so whenever you see on networks and TVs and hosts and stars and everybody thanking God for this award and that award, which, why would you thank God for something that's so dark and evil? And you've got politicians that are telling you, we are the ones that are living and telling you how Jesus would want you to live, but we are the ones that are calling for babies to be murdered up until their birth. Have we become that dull? Have we become that numb? Have we allowed Satan to blind us in such a degree that we can't see the truth? And I just pray that wherever you are in your born-again experience, that you are able to examine your life and thank God and be simply thankful that you're His because of what He has done for you. Acknowledging the small, significant part you've played. But it's all about God. Or it's not about God at all. Right? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, 
know what? You have eternal life. The Lord doesn't want us to go through this life hoping that we're saved, hoping that we've done enough. We'll just sort of wing it and we'll see in the end if I close my eyes in death where I wake up. He wants you to know that you can be saved. I remember one preacher years ago, uh, he was very legalistic, very extremely legalistic, well-known, powerful preacher. His dad was dying. He loved dad more than any other man, he would say. And when he went to the hospital on several occasions to visit him, shortly before his death, his dad said to him, I just hope I've done enough. I hope I've done enough. He said this to Rubel Shelley. I hope I've done enough. Rubel Shelley was one of the most legalistic, brilliant preachers I believe that God's put on this earth. But his dad looked at him and said, I hope I've done enough that I get there. And Rubel's testimony is, it was in those words that God convicted his heart. And he said, Daddy, you're the best man I know. And you are not there because you've done enough good. You are there because you believed in Jesus Christ and you received him and you lived a life of faith. Not perfect faith, but faith. Luke Perry, 52 years old, stroke and dead. I'm 57. 52. Luke Perry, 90210. Luke Perry, heartthrob for many. I heard one quote of a good friend say, he deserves a place at the side of God. My kids will always say, and but they're starting to do that less as they get older. Dad, you're always preaching. But when I heard that, it was like, first, there's none of us that deserve a place by the side of God. I don't. You don't. No one does. It is by grace and mercy we get a place at the throne of God. That's one. But it's a nice, probably worldly sweet thing to say. For two, I hope he was a believer. I hope he received Jesus. I hope that he was born again. Because if he wasn't, there's no place by the Father's side for him or for you or for me. Christianity is not a religion, as so many say, to make us better people. It is to make dead people alive. And that's what God does through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit.
And I hope that you can know and do know that you're saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the things that uh, we can understand. And Lord, we're even thankful for the things that we don't understand because we know you work them out. But I pray that every born-again person that's in this room this morning, I pray they're simply thankful because they know, as you've made it known to them, that they are saved. And if they don't have that peace and that comfort, I pray they will seek someone out, talk, and that they would pray to you and that they would simply listen to your heart. We thank you. Simply thank you for Jesus' teachings that mean so much to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Matt begins to lead the worship,